A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com. Hey, y'all, it's Jacqueline. Summer is almost over, which means we will be back very soon with brand new episodes of Unscrewed. But before then, I've got one more rewind episode to share with you. This one is with the brilliant trans performer and educator Rebecca Kling, who was kind enough to answer a listener's somewhat complicated question about how you know when you feel like a woman. And then we talk all about how inadequate language is when it comes to gender and sexuality, uh, as well as some of our favorite sex and gender words. So it's a little nerdy. It's a little smart. It's a little funny. There's pudding. Uh, you're gonna love it. It's one of my favorite episodes from Yes Means Yes. You'll hear Rebecca's full intro once the show starts, but since this episode was recorded, she has taken on an amazing new role at the National Center for Transgender Equality, where she's the community storytelling advocate, uh, which means she elevates the stories of trans people and their allies. So that's really rad. If you haven't checked out NCTE's work, definitely check them out. And in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Unscrewed. The show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I'm your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and this week I'm finally bringing to you the amazing Rebecca Kling, who I'm honestly remiss in not having had on the show before now. Uh, Rebecca is a transgender artist and educator who explores gender and identity through solo performance pieces and educational workshops. She regularly tours to colleges, universities, and theater festivals from coast to coast and has earned praise from print and online publications across the country. In 2013, Kling was named as part of the inaugural Trans 100, a list celebrating excellence in the transgender community. In 2014, she was named as one of the Guild Literary Complex's 25 writers to watch. So we are going to sit here and watch you. Is that what we're supposed to do? Yes, but you can watch with your ears, which is like watching with your eyes, but louder. Okay. I like anything that's louder. Rebecca, can I tell people how we know each other? Yes, absolutely you can. So you and I met when you volunteered to workshop my last book, What You Really, Really Want. And we're such a crucial part of shaping that book into what it is. Um, And I've been grateful for your, both your wisdom and good humor ever since. Well, thank you. It was a wonderful process. And I really appreciated the opportunity, both as an activist helping keep trans identity present in conversations about sexuality and sex, as well as selfishly for myself, it gave me an opportunity to reflect on what I do really, really want. What do you really, really want? What a big question. (laughs) I asked you here, I think, for two somewhat unrelated reasons, although maybe they are more related than I thought. And the first is because I met a listener a couple of weeks ago 
who asked me to have somebody on to answer this very specific question she had, and you were gracious enough to say that you were willing to take it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the question was basically this. She has trouble when trans women say that they know that they're women because they feel like a woman, because she, as a cis woman, has very difficult feelings about being a woman and thinks that the feeling that trans women have that they think is, I feel like a woman can't possibly be what it really feels like to be a woman or you, or trans women wouldn't actually transition. It's very sloppy, which is actually our second topic, which is like language around this stuff sucks. Um, (laughs) I, I, part of what I like about that question is acknowledging how difficult it is to get in someone else's head. Yeah. I'm what? even having trouble articulating the question because I feel like I'm trying to translate something in her head, like, because I don't quite grok the, I don't have, I don't share the question. You know, for me, huh. I'm like, I don't care, right? Like, it, Well, it, and part of what becomes tricky about questions like that, before yeah. I get to answering it, talking a little around it, is that going back to the idea of hurt people hurt people, very often questions like that are being used more as weapons of, well, how can you know what it really feels like to be a woman? Rather than coming from the place of, I'm trying to understand, and this is a sticking point I have. And it felt very much like the second, which is why I entertained it and tried to find someone who could answer it. Um, And and similarly, something I like to talk about is that I have chosen to put my educator hat on. What does your educator hat look like? I realize that the, the... Physical object I grab is about the size of a fez. My educator hat is relatively small. (laughs) But I have chosen to be an educator. And I think there's an assumption in our culture that if you're a member of a minority community, you have an obligation to talk about being that minority. And I think this is a, a similar place that stupid white people will ask to feel a person of color's hair. Right. Or, um... People will assume that they can feel a pregnant woman's belly. There's this assumption that if your body and your experience is different, it should be public space. I am explicitly putting on my educator hat and and entering the fray. So how do you know what it feels like to be a real woman? Part of the reason that question resonates with me is that that language is something I struggled with as a kid. So I knew from very, very young that being boy didn't feel right. Certainly before I I hit puberty, from the time I was five or six, I knew that boy didn't feel right. And the analogy I use is that we all have that experience of tossing and turning, trying to get to sleep. And we know we're uncomfortable, but we're not sure how to get comfortable and get Mm. to sleep. Mm -hmm. Boy for me was sort of like that. It was that tossing and turning that I knew was wrong, but I wasn't quite sure what would be right. And so when I started to come out, the language I used was, I think I want to be a girl. And part of that, I think, was a a caveat, was an escape clause of, I'm not really sure what I want or how I feel. And part of it, and I remember thinking this is, I don't know what it feels like to be in anyone else's head. I can look as an outsider and see, okay... I see my dad and what it means to be a man, and I don't really want that. And I see my mom and see what it means to be a woman, and that feels more right. But at the end of the day, I don't know what it feels like to be in anyone else's skin. It's sort of like the stoner conversation of, 
well, what if we all see different colors, but we just call them the same thing? Right. Is the dress white and gold or blue and black? Oh, man, I refuse to wade into that. <laughs> I'll answer the tough questions, but that is a bridge too far. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to overimpose. And so the question of what does it feel like to be a real person of this gender, to be a real man or a real woman? And implicit in this question is often, and it sounds like the the listener you spoke to had this experience of many women experience the oppression of being a woman, that in our culture, male is a privileged class. And so there's a question of, well, how could you, hypothetical trans person, hypothetical trans woman, know what it feels like to be oppressed and, and be willing to embrace that identity when you've had all of this privilege growing up. Does that feel right to what that, this listener was saying? Yes. I mean, again, I'm really hesitant to put words in her mouth, but I don't have her here, nor do I have a, a piece of writing from her. And that was my impression, anyway, from what she was saying, is that, yes, she's experienced a lot of pain that derives from being a woman and not a man. Of course. And part of the response to that is, remembering and acknowledging that there are lots of different types of trans people, that trans men exist, people who are assigned male at birth, rather people who are assigned female at birth and identify as male. And that sort of indicates that it's not just people socialized as male co-opting womanhood, that there's something else going on. From a medical standpoint, there's starting to be really interesting indicators of brain chemistry or brain development and brain growth that might hint that trans brains are not the same as cisgender brains, or rather a trans woman's brain is closer to a cis woman's brain than it is to a cis man's brain. And all of those are starting to hint at interesting different ways that we might get to the physical causes or the genetic causes or the biological causes. But more from a political standpoint and from an emotional standpoint, the question of how does anyone know what it feels like to be part of their identity group? At the end of the day, for me, it was trying it on and seeing what fit. That I personally did not subscribe to the idea of trans identity of, I know from day one, I want this and this and this and this, and I want this change to my body, and I want this to happen, and I want this presentation. I developed and grew into it. And in the same way that any cis woman hopefully has that experience of developing and growing as a child and an adolescent as a teen, during the course of my transition, I experimented with identity and I experimented with presentation and discovered that, okay, I do like this type of clothing. I don't like this type of clothing. I do like this type of interacting with the world. I don't like this type of interacting with the world. Rather than saying from day one, well, I know what it feels like to be a real woman. Saying from day one, I know where I am right now feels pretty shitty. And I try and experiment and work towards finding what feels right. How's it going? Can I ask? (laughs) It's going pretty well. (laughs) One of the things that I find ironic about my journey is that at the beginning, I absolutely said, I'm not subscribing to this all or nothing. I am not going to sit down on day one and say, okay, I know I want hair removal and I know I want hormones and I know I want gender reassignment surgery and I know I want to wear makeup and dresses and dolls and all of that bullshit. At the same time, I ultimately chose most of those things or realized most of those things were right for me. 
So a little over a year ago, in December of 2013, I had gender reassignment surgery. And many trans people, and certainly in pop culture, that's sort of considered the end of transitioning, big air quotes around the idea of end. And that was a decision I made because it felt right for me. It wasn't a decision I made because at day one, I said, well, real women have vaginas, and so I need to have one. It was because over the course of my transition, I discovered about myself that that was something that felt right and would make me feel more connected and at home in my body. One of the other things that I think can be forgotten is that trans people are not immune to all of the cultural bullshit that all people feel. So when cis women sometimes will say, well, well, how can you know what it feels like to be a real woman? You weren't bombarded by all of the negative gender stereotypes. Actually, I was. And they certainly didn't impact me the same way. I never, as a teen who was socially presenting as male and was perceived as male, the stakes were very different in how that gendered behavior was put on me. Right. But at the same time, when I stand in the checkout line and see all of those airbrushed and Photoshopped bodies on the magazine stands, that impacts me and has uh, prompts an emotional reaction for me as well. I think that there's a a thread in the question, which is all of, which is also suspicious of sort of the performance and reification of a particular kind of femininity that I've certainly heard. And I don't know if I'm projecting this on this particular listener, but I've certainly heard other cis women express that fear or concern, right? That trans women aren't complex enough and they just sort of put on all of the sort of as many symbols of femininity as possible, which which sort of makes things suckier for womanhood in general. I don't know. Again, I don't feel like I'm articulating this well, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Part of my response to that is, again, a reminder that trans men exist. (laughs) And that trans women of all different types of, of gender expression exist. Not all trans women like wearing high heels and thick makeup and frilly dresses. And there's sort of this cultural assumption from awful movies and from Jerry Springer and from uh, Geraldo and all of those awful talk shows that all trans people are trans women and that all trans women like high femme. And neither of those things are true. At the same time, there definitely are trans women who do. And there are trans women who sort of parrot or caricature ideas of womanhood. Sometimes that is part of an awkward transition. In the same way that as teenagers, many of us chose ways of expressing that we are now embarrassed by. (laughs) Transitioning is being a teenager in many ways. There's physical changes and social changes and emotional changes and experiments with presentation that unfortunately are often a lot more awkward at 25 or 35 or 45 or 55 than they are at 15. But I would also say, like, there are plenty of cis women who perform a sort of high femme drag without thinking about it terribly deeply enough to, you know, run the fashion and beauty industry. I don't think it's mostly being fueled by trans women. And to me, some of it goes back to the sort of conversations around second wave feminism of is being a housewife inherently bad? Or is it bad to have that imposed? Is wearing skirts and makeup and heels inherently bad? Mm. Or is it bad when you have to? I would argue that it's the latter. 
now you're making me want to get Julie Serrano on the show. I tend to skew pretty femmy. I'm maybe get high femme less often these days than I did when I was in my 20s, but that's more out of laziness and complacency. Um, <laughs> it's work. It's, it's a lot of work. Femininity is work, man. And I remember when, before Whipping Girl came out, there was an excerpt of it, of it published. I want to say it was in Bitch Magazine, and I was reading it on a bus in Montreal when I was performing at the Fringe Festival. It's just this very specific memory. The thing that Julius Rono has to say about femininity, which is what Whipping Girl is all about, which was what you were saying in another way, is femininity is no more constructed than masculinity. And yet as a culture, and even in many parts of queer culture, we treat masculinity as natural and inherent and femininity as constructed and performative. Absolutely. And that realization, because I already knew I was femme, right? Like I just, I had tried when I came out, I kind of tried to do flannel shirts and it was, <laughs> it was a brief period in time. Um, just didn't, it was not a match. So I already felt that way, but I always had this sort of guilt of like betrayal, you know, that I wasn't being a good enough feminist or a good enough queer. And, and Julia Serrano, like saved, saved my life is probably a hyperbole, but like my psychic life, yeah. um, she really helped me in that one, there are very few click moments in your life, but it was like a, a switch had been flipped and I just sort of settled into myself and like let go of all of that shame and struggle and was like oh no this is everything all genders are constructed that if you think you can achieve some natural gender state that is in itself i think a delusion and i'm i'm speaking as someone who is certainly on the femme end of the spectrum i rarely have the as you said the energy and the patience for <laughs> my femme but as someone who likes wearing makeup and has long hair and wears jewelry and has dresses in her closet those things feel right to me and i would never dismiss or or discount someone else's womanhood or manhood for that matter or androgenhood or right <laughs> or something else entirely hood because they do or don't like those things right but femininity somehow is still demonized as suspect right and that we're dupes right like we've been brainwashed by the culture to want those things and well, we're all influenced by culture, right? But, it, but you know, why do you and I pick up on one part of it and other people are like, that doesn't sound right to me at all? Well, and, and circling back to the original question, at the end of the day, I'm happier having transitioned. And to some extent, it sort of feels like the proof is in the pudding. That's not a super satisfying theoretical or ideological answer. Sure. Um, but it's a very human level answer, which is, I think, where we should always be grounded with these things. I would hope so. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for being very patient with that question. I think that you said a lot of brilliant things, and I'll be more prepared if I hear someone ask it again. And and something that I that wasn't part of that question, but it made me think of is sometimes a rejection of the term cis or cisgender comes from people who say, but I don't feel comfortable in cultural expectations of femininity or masculinity. And so I must not be cis. So cis can't be the right term. And what I want to remind people of is how valuable cisgender is when talking about power and privilege. That cisgender does not mean you fit every cultural expectation of being a man or being a woman, but it means you can walk into an ER and expect the doctor to understand how your body works or that you can go to court and expect your gender to be respected. And you can go to the bathroom without somebody attacking you. Right, right. And I think that something that, that sometimes people legitimately get frustrated with is an, uh, is an incorrect definition of cis as perfectly matching their assigned gender rather than mostly sort of kind of. It's like a preponderance of evidence standard instead of beyond a reasonable doubt. <laughs> and and we wouldn't want to ask trans people to meet more than a preponderance of evidence standard either. Right. I'm going to need to remember, as the child of a lawyer, I'm going to need to remember that. <laughs> well, and as someone who really enjoys precise language, I appreciate the, what is often in, in lawyers, that tendency. Yes. Well, and which transitions to sort of the second thing that I wanted to talk with you about, which we've kind of already been talking about, which is I called you last week to ask you for your opinion on a project I've been asked to participate on, which centers around the word pussy. And we had a really interesting conversation about the word pussy, which we can try and replicate here if we want to. <laughs> um, but I think that the thing that was more interesting between us was sort of an acknowledgement, because you asked me like, well, why does it need to have the word pussy? What could it have the word body? Could it have the word vagina? How would the project change? Not to talk me out of it, but to sort of sort of press me on what do I mean? And I found it very hard to articulate. Even I could articulate how it would be different if you changed the word, but I found it very hard to articulate what I meant when I was talking about kind of the idea of pussy, um, the, the conceptual political pussy. Um, and which got us to start talking about how leaky and inadequate all of our language is when it comes to talking about sexuality and gender, yes. um, and even biological sex and genitals and stuff, and how frustrating it can be as educators around this stuff to feel like the language is always leaking. I struggle all the time as a writer with the idea that words are leaky, right? Like I can mean something very precise and I can never quite say it exactly how I, I, how I think and feel it in my head, right? Um, but I feel like when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality and gender, the words just fall down like a house of cards. Yeah. Well, because there are so many people who, and this is true of any identity, but there are so many people who use them differently. As someone who was raised culturally, but not particularly religiously Jewish, I like using Jewish identity as, a, as an analogy because 
I can identify as Jewish and never go to services and never light Shabbat candles, and that's okay. And someone else can identify as Jewish and keep kosher and go to um, Shabbat services every week, and that's okay. Both of those identities are totally valid. Well, and what's interesting about that is Judaism is both an ethnicity and a religion. Right. Um, which is sort of about like the way some of these words get conflated between sex and gender. And and something that I talk about in the educational workshops that I do is that the first, maybe not the first, but an important early step of being an ally to someone who comes out to you as trans or queer or genderqueer or any of these other words that we have is to ask what it means to them. Right. Because when I'm doing workshops, I try to define words the way I use them and I try to define words the way I have seen them used broadly. But that doesn't mean that's the way that they're used by every single person. Right. In fact, it, it almost certainly does not mean it's used that way by every single person. But then, then how do we organize? That was part of the question we were sort of grappling with over the word pussy, right? Like, we need to have a common language in order to talk about things. And yet we also, I fully support everyone's ability to sort of define things for themselves. But, you know, there are trans men and genderqueer people who call their genital situation their front hole. And if someone, and which is fine with me if they call themselves that, but when it gets applied to me, it's like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> it's just not my word. Right? It's not my term. It's not how I feel about it. It's not how I relate to it. And yet, medically, if we were go to go to see a doctor, we have very similar genital configurations, right? So how do we have productive conversations about this stuff that respects everybody's right to self-define, but also acknowledges that we have things in common. Well, I gotta go. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> no, you're supposed to solve it. I think part of the answer is going to depend on context. I saw Bear Bergman and Toby Hillmeyer Bear. give, who are both lovely, give a presentation on trans positive sex at the Creating Change conference in Denver this past February. And they started by brainstorming language we can use around bodies. And we had this great whiteboard with all of these fun words um, and, and phrases around body parts. And then they said, we are going to use words that you would probably see on an anatomy chart because we have to use something. But you should be encouraged to substitute whatever word feels right for you. And I sort of like that as, a, as an acknowledgement that nothing is going to work for everyone but that if we try to find something that makes every single person feel happy, we're going to need to say a huge list whenever we try to talk about bodies or identity. Right. And I think in an educational workshop like that, language can be different than in a bedroom. Sure. In but then there's also in the media where you only get a tiny soundbite or a title of something and you don't get to explain what you mean by it. I know there was a big controversy a year or two ago when some abortion providing organization ran a fundraiser called Night of a Thousand Vaginas. Mm. And a lot of trans men said they felt really excluded by that language uh, as people who might or had at some point need abortion care. Yeah. And I don't honestly like, I'm not asking you to like be my shrink on this, but like, <laughs> I don't know how to square that circle exactly. Like I hear both sides and I don't really 
I don't find a comfortable landing place in that conversation. Well, and I think part of it is how much context and language can there be around it? If Night of a Thousand Vaginas makes sure to include the voices of trans men and trans women, trans women who are not going to be able to seek abortions, but are certainly impacted by the availability of abortions based on having friends and family who might be. Sure. And trans men who may actively have at some point in the past or the future need abortion services and have those voices included and just as important and just as valid. This is something that we were talking a little bit around the idea of pussy and pussy power of if from cover to cover, from the beginning forward to the description on the back of the book, that it's clear that pussy is used as a starting off point to have a conversation about body and, and identity. Awesome. If pussy is used as the end of the discussion, that's maybe a little more problematic. Right. I think you see things with this, like in the vagina monologues, which started off as focusing specifically on the experiences of cis women. And has done a little bit to come back from that. And that is worth something. But I still feel like, and I know other artists in the queer community who still feel like it is more of a, oh shit, we need this, rather than a, how do we weave it into the fabric of this project? It's like a patch. Yes. And so maybe if, and I, I literally forget whether it was Planned Parenthood or which organization that was having this fundraiser but maybe if that organization had a better deeper track record of weaving trans experience and and trans perspectives and trans care into their into what they do it would have landed differently is that what you're saying i think so and it makes me think of there's a there's a um kink party in chicago i've gone to that's a women's only kink party and i reached out to ask if um i'm outing myself as a kinkster (gasps) Right? My, my smelling salts are around here somewhere. And I asked them what that meant. And they said, for that event, it means not cis men. So they welcome cis women, they welcome trans people, and they welcome trans, they welcome trans women, and they welcome trans men. And I said, you know, I don't think this language is ideal. And they said, you're right, it's probably not ideal. But it's coming from an event that used to be just for cis women. And... We're continuing to use this language, but expanding who's included. And I don't feel like that's a perfect solution, but it made me feel like those are ongoing conversations that they actually really care about. Right. Because they weren't like, hold on, let me check. I've never been asked that question before. And again, the proof was in the pudding that I don't know why I'm using that metaphor today. Um, I almost made a crack earlier about like that being what you call your vagina, but then I thought that might be too personal, but now I can't resist. Oh, that's such an... Un- I don't want to yuck anyone's young. <laughs> Anyone who is listening to this ever has the opportunity to interact with my vagina in any way, please do not call it the pudding. <laughs> See, that's why I didn't do it. <laughs> um, I've also been listening to Amy Poehler's audiobook, and she uses the pudding as a metaphor for something that you really want but may not be able to get, like an award or something. Oh, uh-huh. So now I'm just hearing Amy Poehler saying that she really wants that pudding. <laughs> I assume that she was talking about my vagina. Doesn't that make you feel better about calling it the pudding? It makes me feel different. Okay. <laughs> I do love Amy Poehler. I don't know that I love her between my legs. That's fair. That's a fair distinction. I've totally lost. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> 
So, putting kink Amy Poehler. When I arrived at this event, it felt comfortable that there were people of different gender expressions there, and it was clear that it wasn't just language they were using, but actually a community they were fostering. Right. Going back to the idea of a, of a event or a project around pussy, it would depend in lar- large part around what's the community being fostered and what does that actually look like in practice. Right. All right, lightning round. What do you wish there were better words for? And then after that, we'll do like, what are your favorite words when it comes to sex and gender? I think the process of discovery of figuring out what gender experience and gender expression works for you. And this is something that both, well, that all sorts of people, trans and cis experience. And and it's tough to talk about, which we talked about earlier. What does it mean to feel like a woman? So that's something I wish. Just ask Shania Twain. Shouldn't we always? So that's the first thing that comes up. I also wish not that there was better language, but that there was a better definition. I think the word transition is great. I actually really love the word transition. There is sometimes an assumption that it can only mean one thing, that it's a cookie cutter, right? rather than that it can mean whatever it works for that person. I wish there was a better word for vanilla. I feel <laughs> like vanilla has taken on an air of sort of judgment and parochialism, <laughs> And I want people to feel free to do their sex however they want to and not be in like some kink competition. I think that's fair. I, I say that as someone who has occasionally judged people who are vanilla. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I need to get off my high horse. I also wish there was a better word for bisexual because I can't go near it because it suggests that there are two genders and even just my own sexual history is beyond that, right? And so... Yeah. You know, I I have I made up a word which is flexisexual, um, <laughs> but I can't use that in common conversation unless I have time to stop and define it, right? Well, um, I've seen people use omnisexual. I've seen people use pansexual. I've seen people use queer. But I would agree that those all have political connotations. Yeah, that bisexual doesn't. I want a better word for bisexual that doesn't support the gender binary. Yeah. Okay. What are your favorite sex, sexuality, gender words? I really like queer. I Um, love queer. I use queer in part because I I think something similar that I primarily am attracted to women, but men can be fun too. (laughs) And bisexual doesn't feel right. Right. Going back to what feels right. I do think queer is a super tricky word and there's a huge generational shift. My dad who is entirely supportive of me, understands why I identify as queer, but doesn't like using it because he says he remembers growing up and it being a very hateful word. I used the word queer in a in a talk I gave in Muncie, Indiana, and this sweet, wonderful woman came up to me and was like, no, it was actually during the Q&A and was like, why did you use that word? That word is horrible. And we had actually a really interesting conversation and it's made me more aware of when I use it in public speaking, but it, it's such a useful word. Well, and my mom, on the other hand, will call me and say that her refrigerator is sounding queer, and can I look at it the next time? <laughs> Does she Is she being funny on purpose, or she only thinks nope. of that single meaning that's divorced of any sexuality-related meaning? She div- has uses it in a way that is divorced. Now, I really want to ask her, because she maybe is is 
more on the ball than I'm giving credit for. So she, it's entirely possible she may be messing with me. Does she, do you giggle every single time? I Yes. The internet connection is queer. Well, maybe you should stop going to those websites. <laughs> it's so charming to use it that way. It is. I've sort of started doing it. I like it, actually. Okay, queer. What else? I would say that's the, the big one that I use for myself. I think, again, cisgender is an incredibly important term from a political and a power standpoint, even though aesthetically I don't love it, cisgender, but I think it's a super valuable word. It is a very valuable word, and it has a very clear meaning, and I appreciate that. I like the parody of having cis and trans. Well, that's why I think it's important. Yeah. Like, it, it makes the whole thing sort of judgment-free. Yeah. And it makes it apparent that all of us are something. It's not like neutral and trans. Right. Right. Normal and trans. Oh, what other sex words do I really like? Now I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I mean, I actually like pussy a lot. Um, I like dirty words for the vagina in general. Um because it makes people uncomfortable in a way I enjoy. <laughs> and because I do fun dirt, like the good kind of dirty things with my vagina. I feel like the word, I think maybe it's because the word vagina is so terrible, or at least I feel, I don't like it. It's not, I don't know that it's terrible. I don't think it's very sexy. It's antiseptic. Yes. It's so medical sounding. So I, I think about that question more. Cause I, I was comfortable using cock for the parts that I had before I had surgery. Like, that was language that felt okay to me. But I haven't thought a ton about what language feels good now. So I'm going to need to think about that. Have fun with it. Thanks. I like cock a lot. Cock is really satisfying. I agree. It is an aesthetically pleasing word. Yeah, and it's so much better than dick. Yes. Dick feels sort of hostile or, like, diminutive. Yeah. All right. So tell me how people can find you online and elsewhere. So they can find me at RebeccaKling.com, which is R-E-B-E-C-C-A-K-L-I-N-G.com. From there, there are links to me on Facebook, which is also Rebecca Kling, on Twitter, which is Rebecca Kling. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Jacqueline F, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F, as in Friedman. You can also find notes for this and all of our past shows at JacquelineFriedman.com, along with lots of other info about what I'm up to these days. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find Unscrewed wherever fine podcasts are available. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any episodes. And wherever you're subscribing, especially if it's iTunes, if you could give us some five stars, some good reviews, that is how you help other people find the show. Unscrewed is produced and edited by yours truly. Our in and out music, which is kicking in right about now, is by The Pink Tiles. And our cover art was designed by Nicole Dodonna in collaboration with The Establishment, which also produced the sound cues. Until next time, I'm wishing you all safe and happy sex lives. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.